0: Hello and welcome to episode 155 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us for a new batch of episodes on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. And we have got a huge back catalog of really great authors, screenwriters, video game writers, comic writers and also some industry experts, agents, hollywood managers and stuff. so please do check that out if if you haven't seen those episodes before. but we're kicking off this batch of episodes with i think it's fair to say a real giant of the sci-fi scene.
1: yeah, absolutely. i think if you're if you're a sci-fi uh, fan at all, you'll you'll know his name, mr. charlie stross joins us in this episode and uh, i mean for those that aren't familiar familiar with his work, he's written, I mean, dozens and yeah, just a, a, a ludicrous a amount of books, books yeah. and, and the short Marchant stories. Princes, yeah. the Laundry Files, yeah. short stories. Uh, he's won Hugo awards, you know, amongst hundreds of other examples. He's he really has done. Uh, he's he, and he's he started off at quite a early point. He's he's went through that route of you know putting short stories on to. Uh, small science fiction magazines, and he's worked his way up into novels. and Yeah,
0: I mean, as as we'll hear, it, it took a bit bit more time than you might expect to actually get into the the novel writing world. And then, even when you're an established author like Charlie, you know, changes at big publishing houses can you know that nearly derailed um one of his series and stuff. And we talk about that That's as right. well in the podcast. Yeah. Um, so yeah it's a really fascinating episode with as we say a real legend of the of the sci-fi writing scene so we will get straight into it after a quick advert for a writer's notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest
1: but for now on with the podcast
0: the blank page to some it's terrifying an obstacle to overcome
1: Every story starts with page one.
0: Did you always want to be a writer?
2: Pretty much. um, My mother, who's now dead, was trying to write a novel when I was a a wee thing, I think about five to six years old. So I remember her banging away on a manual typewriter at the kitchen table in the early 1970s. And... um, as a result, I sort of got the idea that this was a perfectly normal thing adults did. Mm-hmm. So I began writing fiction myself. I actually tried writing a novel when I was 15, um, around the same time I was into D&D, which was not unco- not that common at that time, mm-hmm. and um, just kept going. So I've been writing fiction since my teens, although it took me a lot longer to get anything that anybody wanted to read.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was going to ask about that because obviously, uh, yeah, you you started your writing back then, but it was it was the first published novel wasn't until I think two thousand and three, is that right?
2: Uh that's right. It kind of hung fire. I mean I first began selling short stories in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. My first short story came out in Interzone in I think 1985 or 1986. But um I made a whole bunch of mistakes in the early days both in, I guess, marketing and pitching myself and also in what I was trying to write and where I was trying to sell it, which is the most important thing. What I was writing wasn't really suitable for the market as such. I only really gained traction when I began targeting the American Mm -hmm. uh, markets with short fiction and then somehow managed to acquire a literary agent fairly rapidly. Not my first agent. I was represented twice earlier in the UK and by my agent both times, <laughs> but then third time lucky, I landed an American agent who knew what she was doing, and um, been with her ever since. And that's where we began selling books together. Excellent.
1: Uh, am I right in saying that the first novel you actually wrote was the Atrocity Archives back in mm. nineteen ninety nine? But, but it wasn't that wasn't the first book that actually you sold.
2: Uh, no, that wasn't the first novel I wrote. It was about the twelfth. Okay. <laughs> the earlier ones, um, I've mostly shoveled under the rug except for one um, called Scratch Monkey, which is published in limited hardback by Nesfa Press, an American SF, uh, SF fan group press. Um, that one very, very nearly sold in 1992-93 in the UK, um, but failed due to a freeway misunderstanding between myself, my agent, and a British publisher. It's probably a good thing it failed to sell because... It's a little bit lumpy in the middle and more importantly, I wasn't ready to follow it up. It works as a novel, but I hadn't quite figured it. I, I didn't do any real courses in creative writing. I just learned by doing, mm-hmm. and it took me another couple of books before I figured out how to do it repeatedly. Um, now the atrocity archives was kind of sort of my first to be published. Um, It originally got serialised in a small Scottish SF magazine called Spectrum SF, which vanished shortly thereafter, um, in in 2002. Um, But that was actually after my agent had found the publisher for Singularity Sky, as it became known. It was originally titled Festival of Fools. That was written sort of 1997 to ninety nine. The Atrocity Archives was written immediately afterwards. So there's all these weird overlapping projects... The stories that became Accelerando I started at in, at in 1998 and finished in 2004 and that was referred to appear as a book.
0: <laughs> well <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you, you you mentioned there that you you know early on when you were trying to get this stuff published you had made a number of mistakes and stuff like that. I mean back then you know nowadays people can Google stuff? Look on Reddit. Look and go into forums and stuff, and get lots of information about how what the process is and the best way to go about things. But was it a, was it a harder thing to to find the right path
2: back then? Uh, yes, arguably it was. Firstly, if you're doing research, imagine no Google, no internet. In fact, mm-hmm. um, in fact, you're lucky if you've got a word processor at all. Um, secondly. Writing-wise, we currently have pretty much an academic establishment of creative writing courses, if you're that way inclined. Uh, That just didn't exist for genre fiction back then at all Mm. and was embryonic for mainstream literary fiction back then. There were writer's workshops where you'd hole up with a bunch of other writers for a week and hammer at each other's prose, but you had to get plugged into a very specific circuit to even find them, which took some years of doing.
0: Sure. And and obviously you've you've now gone on to write since that um, struggle you've then gone on to write loads of books I think it's fair to say I'm not even going to try and count how many have have now been published but um, a, a lot of your books are uh, sort of more than one genre crossing genres and things like that which is something that even nowadays we we. Having spoken to other guests, are told that is always something that is difficult to sell. Agents are always keen to, you know, box you into one category and say, this is how I'm going to market you. I mean, did you have any pushback in terms of the types of stories you were wanting to sell? Or or do you still have that?
2: Yeah. I had tons of pushback. When I first sent the Atrocity Archive to my agent, she rejected it. She said, this is way too cross genre and experimental. Nobody will buy it. It wasn't until I sort of got it serialized in that short magazine, then found an American small press publisher who wanted it if I just add a novella. And then the novella got shortlisted for Hugo. And at that point, my agent sat up and started paying attention. <laughs> um, but prior to that, she was pretty negative on the Laundry Files stuff, which, which wasn't called the Laundry Files back then anyway. It was just one, one short novel um, because it was too weird. Um, it's a comedy spy thriller with a Lovecraftian horror um, but specifically pastiching British spy thriller authors. I mean, who ordered that? <laughs> that just wasn't on the map back then. It'd be a lot easier now because I sort of, in addition to me blazing a trail, there are various other authors you can use as reference points for that sort of thing. It's become semi popular. But in 2000 ish, it just wasn't on the map. Um, similarly, the real problem any author faces tr- trying to sell something is who are you selling to? Mm -hmm. You think you're writing for the public readers, but you're not. Before you get anywhere with the public, you have to convince an editor who is essentially managing a production workflow inside a corporation that they like your book and they think it will break even commercially. They know it won't break even commercially unless they, in turn, can convince the publishing organization's marketing team that it will work. And the easiest way to convince a marketing person about anything is sell this. It's just like the last one, only slightly different and better. Yeah. Which is why you see so many authors who get boxed into trilogies or series from the first book and they never get to do anything else. Now, after about 15 years of failure to launch writing novels from the 1980s to the 1990s, I decided to reboot everything in the late 90s. At that point, I realized I could either stop writing completely and give up or get serious about it. And I sat down and figured out, what have I learned from my mistakes? Um, First thing I learned, don't bother approaching publishers yourself. Find an agent as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Secondly, start by building a name in short fiction and target the biggest publishers of short fiction currently available. In this case, this was the big American magazines, notably Asimov Science Fiction Magazine, Fantasy and Science Fiction, and Analog. Um, these days, it wouldn't be. Things have changed immensely since that period, but we're talking pre-e-book.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, with novels, I resolved, start by writing a novel, make it the first book in a series. Do not go on to write the second book, because if the first book fails, the second book won't sell either. Start by writing the first book of a different series in a different sub mm-hmm. So you had Singularity Sky, which was the space opera then the atrocity archives which is the aforementioned mentioned comedy lovecraftian weird thing accelerando was going to be the great singularity novel but cyberpunkish enough to just about pigeonhole as that if the editors wanted it but by 2000 cyberpunk was clearly a dying genre cyberpunk was big in the very late 70s to early 80s mm-hmm. um It turns out a lot of these genres have legs that have lasted far longer than anyone expected. Uh, The new space opera basically dates to the late 1980s, for example. Um, But it wasn't immediately obvious back then what was going to happen. To add to the confusion, when my agent first sold Singularity Sky in the United States, she got me a nice deal from Ace, um, an imprint of Penguin Books. And they wanted Singularity Sky and a sequel And the contract had a weasel clause in it saying they had the option on my next science fiction novel after that, an exclusive option. Now, a problem happened when my agent got the publication date for these books and discovered that the first one wouldn't come out for two years after we sold it. That's why Singularity Sky showed up in 2003. We sold it in late 2000, early 2001. And her immediate response Oh, I should add, I was working as a freelance computer journalist at the time because I was in a dot-com when the dot-com bubble burst. Mm -hmm. Anyway, her immediate response was, well, Charlie, um, there's no point in you writing another science fiction novel yet because Ace will not make you an offer for your next SF novel until they've got sales figures for at least the first book and know if it's done okay. So that's going to take a couple of years. In the meantime, why don't you write me a big fat fantasy trilogy or an alternate history novel or something we can sell as not being science fiction to one of their competitors? (laughs) You wonder how the sausage is made. (laughs) Anyway, this is how the sausage is made. And um, I wrote a book that eventually got published in the original intended form as The Bloodline Feud, but first came out as The Family Trade and the second half of it as of the hidden family because my editor at Tor chopped it in half mm-hmm. you could sell twice as many books that way um and that sold to Tor. as a result of which i found myself juggling a space opera series something indescribable in the shape of accelerando the laundry files and an alternate history parallel universe travel yarn <laughs> um and no, this is a really bad idea. Do not <laughs> inflict multiple series on yourself at the same time. It will end in
0: tears. Well, yeah, I, I was going to ask about that and how you, how you juggle between, you know, because the, the, both the Merchant Princes uh, and, and Laundry Files especially have gone on to have multiple books over lots of years. I mean, how do you juggle between these
2: two long running series? With difficulty, it drove me up the wall. Luckily, The Merchant Princess has reached what is probably a finale. Um, there's a million words of fiction written over a 20-year period out there. Um, <clears throat> I won't rule out going back to and writing another standalone novel in that setting at some random future mm. point. But right now, I'm burned out on it. As for The Laundry, originally, it was just a short novel. Then I got to do a sequel novella. Then that got turned into a book. When the sequel novella won a Hugo Award in two thousand and five, much to my startlement, um the publisher came back and said, "Can you write a sequel book?" so I did and um a year or so later, I got an inkling that this needed to be a series. so the laundry files actually started really slowly, whereas after my editor had made the decision to turn the Merchant Princes into short, skinny fantasy branded novels. Um, I ended up pushing out six of them in the space of eight years. The Laundry Files book three got written in the last of those years. So it was a slow starter. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out I don't have the energy to write, on average, more than one and a half novels a year. Um, on the other hand, I'm 20 years older now than I was then, so I've slowed down a lot. Um, <clears throat> the result is I had to shelve a lot of stuff. Singularity Sky and Iron Sunrise went first when I realized there were internal inconsistencies in the universe. I just didn't want to carry on with it. Accelerando turned out to be a one-off. Glasshouse didn't sell well enough to justify sequels. So, um, weirdly, I had this thing where my, I guess, science fiction or hard science fiction sputtered somewhat in the marketplace, could never really get past two books in a series before it ended. For example, um, Saturn's Children and Neptune's Brood. Sometimes you run into what's just basically business problems. Um, There might have been a sequel after Neptune's Brood, except those books were published by Ace, who were part of Penguin. And when Penguin was taken over by Random House, um, the Penguin imprints got an almighty battering um, as the executives played musical chairs. Um, I got through three editors in one year at okay. one point, and Ace had been significantly downsized by Random House, as a result of which my agent and I made the decision to change publishers. Um, and that's why no sequel to um, Neptune's Brood, for example. Very often you can't take a series with you to another publisher, so series tend to die on the vine. Mm. The one weird exception to that seems to be The Laundry Files. And, well, The Laundry Files has two Hugos and a Hugo nomination on top. So um, when Ace decided they didn't want to publish more Laundry Files works, um, Tor.com were more than happy to pick up the series. Yeah.
1: I wanted to ask about, you mentioned there how, you know, the, the way that these books have been viewed by editors, et cetera, uh had as has gone has gone easier to sell over time as the kind of as this kind of weird norms kind of emerged but how how have these books and i guess science fiction books and these kind of harder to cut harder to uh, put into a category how are they viewed by the public in terms of you know compared to like a literary fiction or, or a crime fiction are they still quite seen as kind of outliers or are they more accepted reading nowadays
2: Science fiction in general is more accepted. Um, the big breakthrough, the big, big first breakthrough, I think, came with the original Star Wars movie back in 1977, 1978, mm-hmm. which went gold. And more importantly, it sold an awful lot of toys because nobody bothered keeping the rights to market toys and merchandise based off science fiction movies. They were tiny back then. George Lucas kept the rights and made $500 million off the rights to make toys. And the result was generations of children who grew up playing with science fiction toys. You then had the gradual infiltration of science fiction into film media, followed by the beginnings of big-budget science fiction on TV. I'm thinking Star Trek The Next Generation here. Mm -hmm. Then a stealthy infiltration of science fiction from the grassroots Um, I don't know if anyone's studied the age demographics of people who watch TV shows these days, but I suspect you'd find that while the science fiction content that makes up probably 50% of the media media these days, thinking films, TV, superhero material, never mind computer games, um, while you'll find that it makes up a huge proportion of what people are watching, old folks, folks over 60 or 70, don't pay that much attention to it. It's mostly aimed at generation X and the younger yeah but a side effect of this has been to kind of legitimize science fictional concepts among the general public. you won't find anybody writing it off as juvenile anymore
0: mm-hmm. and and you've you know alluded to there that in making that decision you know to take your writing more seriously, it led to you having to write across a number of genres uh, and different types of books as well. Uh, I suppose I mean it's a question that that writers hate, but you know, how, how did you how do you keep coming up with ideas across such a diverse range of, of of genre?
2: Um one angle is to read outside the core genre. Um I've got a bit of a magpie's attention span here. I look at something and go, ooh, shiny, and pick it up and write something related to it. Mm-hmm. Um another aspect is <clears throat> people always say how do you get so many ideas? But not really. I mean, okay, I've got about 30 novels out, but you're talking written over a 25 year period. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't need that many ideas per year to come up with a wildly original book every single year, like clockwork. So uh, the other thing is just to bang ideas around from different contexts. I've got a number of pet hobby horses. One of these is the way bureaucracies work. in genre fiction, particularly in young adult fiction, people are kind of addicted to the idea of the hero or heroine who saves the day, defeats the baddie. The bad guy is personified by one person. Yeah, um, Here in the real world, things don't work that way. We have interlocking systems that manage everything. Sometimes you'll find an individual human being who's accidentally in the right place at the right time to stick sand in the gears of the op- opposition's machine. Mm-hmm. Um but a lot of fiction sort of oversimplifies the way the world works for dramatic convenience. Um, this is especially true in movies and TV. Um, this is a side effect, incidentally, of the way narrative pacing works in visual media. A film mm. script runs at about one page per minute. There are 120 to 150 minutes in a in a movie. That's two to two and a half hours. A page contains 100 words of dialogue. I'm probably speaking now at about 200 words per minute, but dialogue needs significant pauses, stuff where the camera pans across to take in another scene, people aren't talking, and so on. Now, if you line it all up, it turns out that a movie contains about 15,000 words of dialogue. Um, if you turn that into narrative fiction, even if you doubled or tripled it for the descriptive content, that would be a very short yeah. Um And as I said, you have to simplify a lot of the complexities of a fictional setting to make it work in a movie, at movie length. Um, To make something work that's even remotely plausible, something like Dune, for example, is a massively layered book with a huge depiction of political events of great significance. Nobody really does that successfully in a single movie. Mm -hmm. Most attempts at doing Dune properly run to six hours or more.
0: Yeah, like the, the latest film was literally half half a story essentially it just sort of ended um and and are you someone that w- when you have these ideas when you sit down to write your next book or whatever do you take time to plan it out and outline it or do you just
2: sort of have these ideas in your head and then just just start writing There are, it's been said there's two types of authors there's plotters who plot everything out in an outline and there's pantsers who go by the seat of their pants and you know they've got a number of whizzy ideas for scenes sitting in our head and we just zoom between them. Um, I tend much more to the latter, but as Ada Palmer, another very good author who's well worth reading, put it, um, answers are plotters and vice versa. It's just they do it in a different order. Mm -hmm. I very often find I'm writing an outline of the book as I write the book itself, And once I've got the complete first draft, I also have an outline. And the outline then shows me how to restructure it to make it work as a final book. Um, If I sat down and took the time to outline everything minutely before I began writing, I would double the length of time it takes me to write. Um, And because I'm doing this for a living, I can't afford to do that. But I can afford to make the outline as I go along and then chop everything up and move it around so that it fits Meanwhile, I am constantly thinking about the ideas for the next book as I'm writing the current one, reading mm-hmm. the, next, the book after next.
1: And do you, do you show it to anyone? Do you show drafts to your agent? Do you know, and, and, and what's your thoughts on notes? Do you find it quite a nice process, getting notes back from people?
2: Um, I have a closed private blog for test readers to see stuff and kick the tyres as I go along. Mm-hmm. I usually show an early complete draft to my agent. I very rarely show her something that's incomplete. That's usually if I'm uncertain whether it's worth persisting with it. For example, back in 2013, 2014, I sent my agent the first 30,000 words of a book. It was going to be one wow, different, magical realist strangeness set in the near future in England. And um, she shot it down diplomatically by saying, Charlie, there are two plot threads here and they are different books. <laughs> And she was absolutely right. So I I basically abandoned the project, except plot thread number one turned into Deadly's Dreaming and plot thread number two turned into Quantum of Nightmares. Okay.
1: Excellent. She was right.
0: (laughs) Well, I I was going to ask about that. Obviously, Quantum of Nightmares uh, came out last year and Season of Skulls uh, is coming out in, I think, May this year. Um, Yeah. Obviously, part of the laundry files. Do you want to tell us a little bit about about those.
2: Okay, I'm a little sore about these books being called Part of the Laundry Files, because okay. it, my original plan was entire new spin-off series that is going to attract a whole new audience, think in terms of Torchwood and Doctor Who. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, it collided with reality because I delivered deadlines Dreaming just as COVID went rampant. Everybody at my publishers was sort of running around panicking, starting to work from home, learning how to do their jobs remotely, and... It was a bridge too far for marketing, um, especially at Tor.com in the States. Um, you can always sell the books as more of the same series. Trying to start a new series is risky. Mm-hmm. After Dead Dreaming did well in the UK, Orbit rebranded it. Um, the paperback edition is marked as book one of the new management, which is the new series title. The distinction between the new management and the laundry is... It, well, first of all, it's set after the end of The Laundry Files story, which I haven't quite finished telling. And secondly, The Laundry no longer exists at that point in the universe. It's actually been dissolved. And it's a story about ordinary people trying to live under a hostile government run by a malign elder god, rather than about civil servants and spies. Um, but... You know, spin up a new series, new story arc, new characters. They're a generation younger than Bob, Moe and the others. Um, This was entirely deliberate because um, I have this fear of my audience aging and dying out from under me. And, well, (laughs) see doing this for a living above. (laughs) Um, So I'm not sure how well the messages got through. Um, But, yeah, I'm ringing the changes with the series here. I will go back and finish The Laundry Files eventually. Uh, But things just got too weird in the UK in 2019 and 2020. So hence the side quest, as it were. Um, Season of Skulls is very clearly a sequel to the first two new management books. Um, If I say a bit more about them, um, Deadlines Dreaming was to some extent a Peter Pan pastiche, Peter Pan with supervillains. Grown-up Peter Pan. And the original Peter Pan, if you go back and read the book, not the horrible Disney cartoon yeah. stuff, was absolutely grim. Um, it was a story for adults to tell their kids to explain why their little brother or sister wasn't coming home from a children's hospital. Because when it was oh, published really? around 1900, um, life expectancy for under fives was such that 20% of them would be dead by their fifth birthday you had to know how to explain death to a toddler. And that's what Peter Pan was for. Oh, I didn't know
1: that. That's interesting.
2: It really is worth reading the book. It is totally mind-boggling, if you can avoid the Victorian levels of misogyny and um, (laughs) anti-feminism in it, (laughs) and a a bit of racism. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I went on with Quantum of Nightmares, which continues the story, and... um, As Lewis McMaster-Budrell said, work out what the worst thing you can do to your protagonist is and then do it to them good and hard. (laughs) And I figured out that the worst thing I could do to Eve was to inflict Rupert on her, because at the end of Deadly's Dreaming, she thinks she's done away with him. Rupert is basically magical Ernst Stavro Blofeld, spectre with sorcerers. And uh, Eve is his icy blonde personal assistant. Um, I think very much Meryl Streep out of The Devil Wears Prada and um she's taken control of his organization and then she discovers to her horror that he's left time bombs behind up to and including assassins and is trying to manipulate her from beyond the grave and at the same time we have another story that is leveraging Mary Poppins and Sweeney Todd
0: <laughs> really going um, back for your influences here and then
2: oh yeah and the third book is more about eve um my elevator pitch for the first season of Skulls is, think, Bridgerton meets the prisoner with offs. <laughs> I'm say... running riffs off Regency Romance um, <laughs> with Tentacles.
1: I have to say, we've we've talked to people in, in, in the past who have written a series of books or trilogies and they've always said that the readership goes down after each book. It drops by the time we get to book three. You're reading about a third of the people who read book one. But but when you look at your book series, The Merchant Princes, the Laundriefhouse in particular, they seem to buck this trend. And you know, yeah. they're actually growing in numbers. Why do you think that is?
2: You're absolutely right. And the answer is because some series do survive. About I think about eighty percent of series you see a decline of between ten and thirty percent from book to book. Mm. Um that actually killed Saturn's children and Neptune's brood in the UK. Um Ace wouldn't take any more in the US, and the sales in the UK, I think the figure I was told was, Neptune's food was down 40% compared to Saturn's children, so I couldn't just continue it for the British market Mm -hmm. and look for a new publisher in the States. Um, I'm not immune to it, but The Merchant Princes, I kind of got the message I was on to a winner after book three, when David Hartwell came back and said, can you write me another three? Because the sales are from book to book. They were level. Each okay. book was selling as much as the one before, and that was not normal. Hmm. In the case of the Laundry Files, um, oh, after cool. the initial small press start, when I got, got them picked up for paperback by Ace, sales began growing by 10% from book to book, which is just unheard of. Yeah. Um, however, um, as I said, it ran headlong into the Penguin Random House takeover merger fiasco, by book seven, I got dropped out of mass market paperback because the paperback format was dying. Um, so I was basically appearing in hardcover and ebook. Now, the ebooks were actually picking up the mass, the mass market paperback sales, but that wasn't something they were bothering to look at back then. And um, apparently, some executive at boardroom level said, We have too many urban fantasy series. I want you to stack rank them by sales based on the fourth quarter. Um, which is October to December inclusive, Mm -hmm. and dropped the bottom 50%. Now, the Laundry Files were hitting the USA Today bestseller charts at that point, um, which is why it was so odd when it got dropped because it wasn't selling official. The the, the reason it got dropped was because they were going on sale in the third quarter, at the beginning of the third quarter in July the way hardbacks are sold in the states is they're sold on a pay in, pay pay the publisher in full after 90 days or return for credit so they'd sell like hotcakes for 90 days but sales would taper off and the bookshop would return any unsold stock sales in the fourth quarter were zero um they they would be cons- continuing in ebook but again ebook punters usually bought it first thing out the gate yeah. um there would be a sales boost a year later when it went paperback and the price of the ebook also dropped. But um, that's how a series that hits the bestseller charts gets cancelled for not selling.
1: That's mental.
2: Yeah, very arbitrary yeah, which decision is, being made. Yeah. Yeah. That is why my agent and I made the decision to walk away from the smoking dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and
0: do, do you think as well, for example, I, I picked up, originally I picked up... Um, empire games not knowing that it was part of the merchant princes series so uh, you i think when you're writing a long running series it's important to have sort of onboarding points for new readers that absolutely can
2: come in absolutely uh, empire games was originally pitched as merchant princes the next generation mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully you got that we also tested it on some junior editors who hadn't been subjected to the first series first time around and tried to fill in the gaps where they might fall through the cracks because it was a complex narrative the first series itself is longer than lord of the rings and then to write another one balanced on top of it Mm -hmm. it's a hard ask for readers um but yeah it's designed to bring people up to speed or to be readable without reference to the earlier series um similarly with the laundry files there are onboarding points um Book one, obviously, but also book five, the chart marks a sideways motion. Book seven, The Nightmare Stacks, is another onboarding point with a whole new narrator character. Um, and then we get into the new management books with book 10, um, Dreaming.
1: When you've, when you've got a, a long-running series like these, um, how do you balance the... I mean, obviously, you're kind, of, you're, you're kind of telling these contained stories, you're having the jumping-on points, you're having new branching pathways, but they're all within the same story world. And how do you balance the scale of that? Because I think I read somewhere online you were talking about how the the challenge of each book has a bigger threat, but there comes a point where it becomes so big it becomes ludicrous and the main character becomes so unrelatable to when they first started you know how many times can you see of the universe and another another threat uh, book two book three etc how do you solve that problem of of, of ever growing scale
2: uh one option is to switch viewpoint characters another is to hold a brief nuclear war and kill off half the characters (laughs) i did that in the first merchant princess series um another is a perspective shot um again, to reference that first Star Wars movie, the opening sequence with the Imperial Star Destroyer chasing the Rebel ship.
1: Yeah.
2: As you see the Star Destroyer coming on screen and getting larger and larger and larger the whole time, then you cut to the bit where the Rebel ship is being taken on board in this tiny docking bay. Then you cut to on board the Rebel ship and realise it's actually quite big. Mm. Um, you keep panning back to get bigger and bigger scales. In the laundry files, um, there's a problem with the protagonist getting more powerful over time as the situation levels up. Uh, in the new management books, I cut to completely different characters. And this isn't a spoiler, I promise, because it happens in the first chapter of uh, Season of Skulls. Eve, the prota- one of the main protagonists of the first two books, uh, meets Persephone Hazard from the original Laundry series, and she is absolutely terrifying. Now, Eve, as I said, uh, she's taken over Magical Spectre, effectively. Um, she's taken over from Blofeld. She is a she is fairly badass. And then she meets somebody who absolutely terrifies her, who is supporting cast from the earlier series. Mm. And this sort of thing is how you give the reader a perspective view on what's going on. Without kind of overloading them, yeah.
0: and and is it is it fun? Do you like sort of doing that revisiting older perspectives or characters that you, that you personally probably haven't written in for, for a while?
2: Oh yeah, I love hanging gu- putting a Chekhov's gun on every mantelpiece yeah. and then pulling the trigger several books later. Mm-hmm. Um, in Empire Games, Rita was a gun I placed on a mantelpiece in I think Chapter Two of. Um, The Bloodline Feud, aka Um I'm forgetting my own book titles. <laughs> this is crazy.
0: Family Trade. Um oh.
2: aka a Family Trade. Yeah. Rita is sort of referenced but not by name in about the first chapter or two, and then suddenly turns up as a main protagonist in the new series set about eighteen years later, and you don't realise it's the same person until two thirds of the way through the first book mm-hmm. in the new series at which point it becomes a really major plot point. Um, similarly, there's similar stuff going on with the Laundry Files, where our protagonist, Bob, who's a very unreliable narrator, is banging on in the first book, the Archive, about his psycho ex, Mari. Then Mari turns up in book five, and we get a different external perspective that Mari is not as psycho as he thought. They were just famously unsuited for each other. And then book nine is told entirely from her point of view, and we get a very different perspective on Bob. Um, And this is sort of how you do viewpoint shifts and use them to pull the rug out from under the reader's feet, not by contradicting what they already know, but by expanding the frame around it. Mm -hmm.
0: And and, uh, when you're you're doing this, are you planning... uh, You're obviously planting these seeds to potentially mine in the future, but I mean are you how far in advance are you planning these stories are you thinking about oh this could happen in in the next three books or something
2: there are some things which are entirely random happenstance where it suddenly occurs to me to have an idea for a book i can write based on something but i'd almost forgotten about from some books ago Mm -hmm. so it looks planned but isn't actually it's just juggling juggling ideas that are already out there um The last laundry novel, which is not yet titled, will probably riff off a lot of stuff this way, because it has a lot of loose ends to tie up, and I left plenty of loose ends lying around. But I don't actually have a plan for it yet, other than to know where it has to end. Um, And then there's other stuff that really is planned. Uh, After Season of Skulls, well, there's a space opera I'm working on, but to finish with the laundry for now... There's a story called A Conventional Boy, but I began writing in May of 2009. Oh, wow. And then had to shell for a while. I couldn't quite figure out how to do it properly back then. Um, Anyway, it's with my editors now. It has turned into a short novel rather than a long novella. It's more than twice as long as Echoed. Um, It's about half the length of a regular laundry novel. It's about a character called Derek the DM, who first gets written into the book significantly, In the nightmare stacks which was book seven of the series so this is going to come up about five books later he gets a book of his own and it's been sort of brewing for 13 years
0: yeah well yeah i can see that uh you when you've got all of these characters and all of Mm -hmm. these threads then you can you can pull at any of them i suppose to to see if there's any any good story there but i mean do you do you just keep it all in your head or do you have it written down somewhere
2: some writers have a world book. Peter Hamilton, when he wrote the Commonwealth series, actually wrote so many notes, but he was able to turn them into a 400-page novel and publish it later. <laughs> in my case, it's mostly in my head. Uh-huh. Um, for a while, I got really happy when I discovered that fans had set up a fan wiki for oh, laundry yeah. files. Uh-huh. But then I discovered, to my horror, they'd been putting stuff into it from the laundry files' role-playing game supplements, which oh, no. I didn't write. So um, I can probably use it for reference, but I have to rely on my memory to tell me what I didn't invent. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and you, you also got the chance to, to go back to your earlier books, earlier first six books in the Merchant Prince series to re-edit, re rewrite them a little bit. You know, what was that experience like? Because I know a lot of authors would, would would hate to go back and reread it, but um, I also can see it being quite a nice chance to upgrade them a little bit.
2: Yeah, what happened there was... As I mentioned, The Merchant Princes got written because, as my agent pointed out, I couldn't sell an SF novel in the States at that point to, to, an, to, the, same, to, to the same publisher. So <clears throat> uh, we ended up selling the Merchant Prince series to Tor, which is not Tor.com. They're trademark-compatible companies within the same multinational. And uh, Tor bought world English language rights, which means they'd have the right to market it in the UK. Now, because of the way publishing works, they don't actually do that directly. What they do is they try and sell the rights to a British publisher. And Tor is part of Macmillan, who also owned a British publisher called Pan, who you might have heard of, Pan Macmillan. And a few years earlier, Pan had done a survey which discovered to their great disgust that the Tor brand name was better known in the UK than Pan as a science fiction imprint. This is why they now publish SF as Tor in the UK.
1: Um,
2: But back then, Tor UK barely existed. It was just a different logo on the cover of books by Pam, which were edited by one of the grand old men of British SF publisher. I'll call him Peter because that's his name. I won't give you his surname because he's still alive and it might embarrass him. (laughs) Uh, He was an old school editor of of the kind who never did less than one bottle of wine with a lunch with an offer. <laughs> um, I swear I once saw him finish three bottles of wine. <laughs> and um, what happened was the my editor and the guys from Tor went over to the London Book Fair and did the rounds for publishers and tried to convince them to buy it. And I got some feedback from my editor saying, you know, it's really dismal. We talked to Tor, you to. M- Macmillan in the UK, but they won't take the Merchant Prince's books. Um, they're not interested. So they had done nothing with the UK rights for a couple of years, and indeed, my agent was about to write me a letter demanding the rights back of the UK so we could tram sell them. When I went to a book launch in Edinburgh, and it was a book launch for a t- new title for, for Scottish author off- acquired by Pan, and um, edited by the guy in charge of Tor UK. And I saw this amiable old buffer sitting with a wine bottle in one hand, a glass in the other, pouring from one to the other because uncivilized to drink wine from the bottle. <laughs> and um, I'd had about three pints of strong German beer at this point, so I was a little bit lubricated and bold. So I did something you're not supposed to do with an editor. you know. I, uh, but I had learned my mistakes and decided to do it diplomatically. I wandered over and said, hi, I'm Charlie Stross, and I think you may have two misconceptions about me. Uh, David Hartwell was trying to sell you a a fantasy series by a hot new American author a while ago. I'm not American, and it's not a fantasy series. Cheers. And then I wandered away. (laughs) Two weeks later which is like instantaneous in publishing terms. Yeah. I got a very excited phone call from David in New York saying, Charlie, you'll never guess what's happened. Tor UK want to publish for Merchant Princes.
0: Excellent. So it was, it was worth it. It was worth that. What approach.
2: had happened was David and his boss, Tom Doherty, who founded Tor, had gone over to London Book Fair and put the arm on Peter and dragged him away and said, Peter, we've got this hot new fantasy series you're going to want to publish. And Peter just crossed his arms and says, shan't, won't, you can't make me get lost. Because what would you do? (laughs) Now, the problem here is Peter retired about two years later, uh, before the books were more than the first one in print, and his designated successor was headhunted by another publisher. So Tor UK was adrift for two years. Now, my SF was being published by Orbit at this time, and... One day, I got an email from my editor at Orbit saying, Charlie, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is I'm getting a promotion. I'm moving sideways to another publisher. I'm going to be taking over Tor UK. The bad news is, alas, I'm not going to be editing you anymore. And I basically (laughs) immediately sent her back an email saying, Bella, you realize you've got the rights to six of my novels when you arrive at (laughs) Tor? We should talk about this. (laughs) And um, the moral of that story is, Never say never. <laughs> um, what I did was I pitched Bella on the idea of, well, the initial attempt to launch them in the UK flopped. But how about I do a proper rewrite and reassemble them as big, fat, techno thrillerish books instead of skinny fantasy novels? Um, new title, new brand name, a whole lot of changes. I made about 3,000 changes to the series for the British launch. Um, and that's the reason for the omnibus versions of the Merchant Princes. Right. I'd also... There was about a 10-year gap between me starting the series and then starting the rewrite. And I have I think I've learned a fair bit about writing and polish in the intervening years. So I was able to, I think, genuinely improve them.
0: Mm-hmm. So what versions are available now in the US? Is it still the originals or is it the
2: revised versions? Uh, I think both. <laughs> right, okay. Saw so USA picked up the omnibus editions and pushed them out. Um, there are still copies of the first series version floating around, though. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think they deleted it for any reason. Okay. Why would they?
0: Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, but very interesting. So what, what is what is next? You've got this uh, novella that's turned into... Well, what was it? Yeah. A, a short story turned into a novella? A short novel. A short novel, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um,
2: what's happening next okay what's next is season of skulls the third (laughs) new management book Mm -hmm. this is almost certainly going to be followed by a conventional boy it's not yet clear how it'll be published it may be a standalone short novel or it may be the centerpiece of a short story collection of laundry short stories okay don't know yet um nothing is definite with that book at this point Looking further beyond that, I know I need to write at least one more novel to finish the original laundry story seri- series story arc, which explains what happened after the Nightmare Stacks, and how Bob and the crew arm-wrestled with the new management, um, which leads to setting the scene for stuff that happens before Deadline's Dreaming.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I basically had to leapfrog one series to start the other. There. Looking beyond that, things get increasingly vague. There may be a fourth new management book. I don't know yet. Um, Nobody makes these decisions until they've got some sales data and reviews for the third book. Meanwhile, I keep getting distracted from something I began in 2014, Um, which is to say um, a new space opera. I've been stuck writing Laundry Files and Merchant Princes for over a decade at this point. So I began writing a new space opera, got most of a draft finished in 2016, at around the time I was parting company with Ace. And I sent the first draft to my agent, and she was very uncomplimentary about it and said, this doesn't work. So I began work on a rewrite, and then all sorts of real-world catastrophic stuff happened. Um, My parents were pretty elderly. I mean, as you probably know from looking at me, I'm 58 now. Uh, I lost my mo- my father and then my mother in the space of uh, two, two and a half years. Oh, to be fair, they were both over 90. But uh, that kind of sours you on whatever work project you're working on at the time, mm-hmm. creatively. In addition, I lost a very close friend at the same period. And then just as I was about to get back to work on it, COVID-19 says hello. Um, all of these things are pretty severe emotional disturbances. So I just left for space opera on the shelf until fairly recently. I am back at work on it in between getting called on to edit, polish and do production work on the current laundry and new management stuff. Um, but if I'm really, really lucky, I might finish it completely within the next year, in which case maybe 2025 we'll see publication of Ghost Engine, which is, hopefully the first of a new space opera series, or at least a solid standalone. And what I set out to do with it, um, I am not going to... I wouldn't dream of attempting to copy or clone the, Ian Banks' culture works. Ian is sweet generist. There's nothing quite like his work. But he left a huge howling howling empty niche, which nobody seems to be successfully trying to fill. <clears throat> So what I decided to try and do was set out to write a high-concept literary space opera Mm
1: -hmm.
2: that explored stuff from a perspective nobody else was using and use it to create a setting, again, not for a series of novels where you have a hero protagonist who continues from one book to the next, but a setting in which I could write stories about different people. And Ghost Engine is set two-thirds of a million years in the future. If you've read my time travel novella palimpsest um it relies on the premise of a wormhole generator that can generate gates between different places in space-time and it's used for time travel by a shadowy organization called the stasi who are effectively the time patrol and who colonize a two trillion year span of earth's past and far future at one point in that novella our viewpoint character sees a vision of a different world where instead of being used as a time gate, the womanhole generator is being used for space colonization. There's no time travel in that particular trouser leg of time, as Terry Pratchett would put it, but the entire local group of galaxies has been colonized. I picked that up and decided, how about I explore this? Mm -hmm. So we have a universe with Many tens of millions of inhabited planets connected via a rather shadowy transport network run by a very anonymous, very paranoid group of people called the Authority. Side effects of their existence because the the existence of a Stargate suppresses other wormhole generators within the observable universe. Um, It becomes a resource of almost infinite value. They have... Essentially mandated a common trade language, a common currency, because they want to be paid for wormholes, a common time and coordinate framework, because they want you to be able to tell them where to connect endpoint A to endpoint B, and um, Uber-style demand-based pricing. (laughs) Um, They're very secretive, because if anybody figures out where they are based, um, those people can send a sloven light battle fleet and kill everybody and steal the Stargate. In fact, this may have happened several times over recorded history. As a con- there are all sorts of interesting consequences of this secrecy because it's essentially um, the most valuable asset anybody has ever heard of. Other side effects: two thirds of a billion years. What does that mean about culture? Well, for one thing, two thirds of a billion, two thirds of a million years of genetic engineering of hominid species. We are. Our existence is inferred at that point. We're extinct, but it's inferred as the last common hominid ancestor before interstellar colonization happens and everyone speciated. Um, again, science as we know it no longer exists. Science today consists of uh, theoretical science and observational sciences. And while observations can still be made, there's always a new supernova to point the telescope at, Theoretical science has pretty much been ended by this point. Anything that a human mind can 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 introspect and explore and think about has probably been discovered thousands of times already. Mm-hmm. You have you know, you have millions of civilizations across most of a million years of history. Um, the upshot is if you want to know something, you go to the archivists. It's actually a medieval worldview in many respects, because some total of human knowledge was compiled by the ancients. Mm-hmm. Where I go with this, I don't really want to spoil But let's just say there's any number of plots you can do, you can use. Um, and psychopathic ninja space monks, flying monasteries, starships <laughs> for the psychopomps and ferry the spirits of the dead back to wherever their homeworld was. Exactly. You heard it here first. That sounds Excellent. absolutely um,
1: fantastic.
2: Yeah. I should also add, it's a universe where there is no actual artificial intelligence. It may or may not be possible, but nobody's developed one. There is no singularity. Um, Joke bit. There are an awful lot of religions that believe in the singularity, though, and they hold holy wars.
0: (laughs) What was the last book that you read?
2: Saint Death's Daughter by C.S.E. Cooney, which is a rather odd fantasy novel. Um, I can kind of recommend if you're interested in uh, reading more about. Families of Necromancers with Highly Regrettable Habits. (laughs) Okay. Cool.
1: Uh, What about the last film that you watched?
2: Um, I don't really watch movies or TV. That's fair Combination of mild ADHD with retinal trouble. The style of camera work this century has an awful lot of tracking shots and zoom and panning and blur and jerky cam. And to me, it just looks totally muddy, like the blurred zoom background behind me. Okay. If a camera doesn't dwell on somebody for long enough, I can't see them. Yeah. Fair enough.
1: <laughs> well, in that case, we'll we'll wrap up with the very final thing we do, which is a super quick fire either or and uh, I always say there's no right answer here apart from perhaps one, but we'll start off with uh, Star Wars or Star Trek.
2: I hate both of them. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to I'll pick settle, one, though. I'll settle for Doctor Strangelove if that's okay. Okay, okay, okay fine.
0: <laughs> uh, um, Night Owl or Early Bird?
2: Um, It's a bit random, Um I'm actually regrettably boring these days because I'm mostly staying at home because COVID. So I'm mostly up around 9 a.m. and in bed by 11 p.m. Uh, uh, I've been known to oscillate around the clock a bit.
1: <laughs> um, music or no music when you're writing?
2: Music, but it needs to be something that is sufficiently over-familiar. I can uh, zone out and mostly ignore it.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: A fancy restaurant or a takeaway.
2: Ideally, it would be fancy restaurant. Unfortunately, this is the era of the plague. Yes, quite.
1: Uh, And the last one: real book or ebook?
2: Ebook only. Um, I mentioned, I alluded to retinal problems, and I really need an ebook reader these days.
1: They are amazing. That kind of being able to
2: increase the font size, etc. Exactly. Stuff's fantastic. Yeah. Excellent
0: well uh, thanks very much Charlie that was a lot of fun
2: thanks for inviting me it's been great
0: well thanks very much to Charlie for coming on I thought that was a really fascinating chat and that was great you know amazing that you've got this situation where there's sort of different versions of the same books in the UK and the, and the US now um, very strange Although, not the only author, because I read recently, um, I think it was on a, on a writing forum that we're both on, actually. Someone was saying that um, David Mitchell uh, of Cloud Atlas fame, that there are two completely different versions of Cloud Atlas. Oh, is that right? In the US that. In the, the UK. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, which apparently makes is one of the reasons why this, the film is is perhaps a bit jarring to UK viewers, I think.
1: Oh, very interesting. Uh, no, but I mean that was a fantastic chat with Charlie. Um, and as we said at the start, I mean, you look at the guy's output, and it's just, and it's so eclectic. Like his his books don't really, you know, follow a pattern. Um, the pattern that I'm sure a lot of publishers would, yeah. would rather that they follow, so that you know, we've often heard that kind of we want them to fit in a genre so we can market them properly. Um, but he kind of just breaks all the all the conventions. Well things.
0: as he said, when when you're when your story that you're being told not to write then goes on to win awards, uh, <laughs> yeah. that changes a lot of
1: people's minds. <laughs> That's exactly right.
0: So, yeah, no, um, uh, you know, if you've not read Charlie's books before, I highly recommend it. Season of Skulls, the new one is out uh, next month in May. Uh, and yeah, there's a whole huge back catalog of his books there as well. And uh, I look forward as well. Hopefully we'll get that space opera one that he was telling us about as well. Oh, that sounds done. great. I know. Yeah. Um, but uh, we've got another great guest next week as well
1: yeah next week we're chatting with Stig Abel who uh, has a really interesting route into the industry like so many others he started off uh, working in the media he was press complaints commission he worked at the sun LBC radio editor of times literary supplement and then he's gone on to a couple of factual books and he's got his first ever crime fiction book out uh, next month
0: yeah, I mean, he he currently presents the Times Radio Breakfast Show, so you know he t- he was telling us he gets up at three am, yeah. tries to squeeze a bit of writing in, you know, and and then he's got young kids as well. I'm not sure how he fits in any room. Bed writing, at so, half past eight. Yeah, so, yeah exactly.
1: You know, it's incredible. All of that and actually writing books. Yeah,
0: but it, so, it was again a really fascinating chat with someone that it clearly has a great love and knowledge of books and particularly. Um, yeah sort of crime fiction so yeah it's it's really worth tuning into that one so please do but before i do my usual spiel about rating and reviewing Tarek, we got an email in our absence. What? yes uh and uh you it is an email that will please you because wow. it talks about
1: to my, my mommy. email
0: it well it's not even from your mom <laughs> it talks about ebooks so this is from james oh,
1: here we go okay
0: uh, james uh, emails in and says uh, he lives in portugal so delivery of paper books is impractical nonetheless come on i'm 110 with Tarek here i save so much self shelf space uh, easy for you to say i can easily sample before i buy i can return within seven days i can adjust text size i can highlight and take notes as i read i can take thousands of books with with me wherever i go and he also oh, says james. i love the podcast well, that's the most important. Part that's
1: the a sweetener. That's, yeah, I mean, James, you're preaching to the converted here, my friend. That is a laundry list of why ebooks are simply the best format to read your books in. Period. And, uh, and we've kicked off. Charlie, of post- Charlie agreed
0: with you, so it's a it's a, right. it's a fine day for you. Mark, oh, what a mark day. This day! What a down. lovely day. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if if you have enjoyed this episode, uh, please do. Uh, take the time to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us to continue to get great guests on the podcast, particularly if you're giving us a five-star rating. So please do consider doing that.
1: (laughs) And of course, if you want to get in touch, you can always send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or you can get in touch on the Twitter machine, which is uh, at UK page one. If it's working. Yeah, thanks to... There's not some kind of dog overtaking the site at that point. Yeah. And, uh, or if you want to avoid all of the politics and go via Mastodon, you can get us at writing.exchange forward slash at page one pod.
0: There you go. What a okay. start to the well, season! you got that I, without I even starting. there.
1: Again, I just feel like I'm on fire. This is incredible.
0: <laughs> well, uh, yeah, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll speak to you next week. See you later.